I'm not Don Adams, but I'm a celebrity impersonator, and would you believe this is the most listened-to podcast in the world? I find that hard to believe. Would you believe the United States? I don't think so. How about Guatemala? I'm Ed Gross, and you're listening to CloserWeekly.com's classic TV and film podcast, where we celebrate the golden age of television and movies, then and now. Back in the 60s, the arrival of the Beatles inspired everything from hairstyles to clothing and, of course, other music. One of the biggest offshoots of Beatlemania was the 1966-71 television series, The Monkees. That show introduced us to Mickey Dolenz, Davy Jones, Peter Tork, and Michael Nesbitt. Initially dismissed as the pre-Fab Four, the guys and the people behind them quickly proved that the Monkees were here to stay. Over 50 years after their debut... Memories of the Monkees are still going strong, as we discussed with Mickey in an interview conducted before he and Mike hit the road on their own concert tour earlier this year. One thing about this interview, it wasn't originally intended for a podcast, so if you want to criticize the audio, hey, we're too busy singing to put anybody down. Thank you for taking the time today. I appreciate it. You know? Cool. Listen, I, I got to ask, is after all these years, is it commonplace for you now, or is it weird that this whole fascination with the monkeys keeps going and going and going. <laughs> well, you know, after, as you say, after all this time, no, I don't find it uh, weird. I just sort of, frankly, I kind of take it for, for granted. Um, well, I shouldn't say that. I never totally take anything for granted. I feel, I feel blessed. You know, I would say that's a, a good word. Um, I, I under I over the years I've grown to understand it because I've given talks on it uh, when I was in England, for instance, producing and directing television shows. Yeah. Uh, people would ask me to, you know, Q and A Q&A about about the business in general and and uh, specifically about uh, you know the the monkey show and uh, why it was uh, it you know had sustained for so long. I. Uh, been asked the question of course even uh, even recently um, <clears throat> and the uh, my uh, my take on it my answer is is simple and it's the same reason ultimately that a show like Star Trek still uh, <laughs> stands up yeah. or any TV show that stands up or movie Casablanca or or music or a record uh, the Beatles records uh, uh in our business, you know, uh, you can't really reduce uh, you can't reduce it in a scientific sense. What made Star Trek the the phenomena that it was? Right. You can't take it apart like uh, <clears throat> you know the old story, taking the watch apart, seeing how it works, and of course it doesn't work anymore. Right. Um, you can't you can't reduce uh, these things. <clears throat> uh, you. You put together a team of people and an idea, and you do your best, and you work hard, and you, uh, you know, you cross your fingers and uh, try not to make too many mistakes. And at at a certain point, uh, the way that I look at it is that the whole becomes greater than the sum of its parts. And again, using Star Trek as the analogy, <clears throat> you can't say, oh, well, Star Trek was, was so famous and big and huge because of William Shatner. 
or because of Gene Roddenberry or because of the writing or because of the special effects or because of Leonard Nimoy. You just can't do that any more than you could say that a, a, a song well, it's just uh, the you know, it's just that one chord in the fourth bar, you know. Yeah, right. <laughs> or it's just, it's just, it's just the vocal, or it's just the writing, or no. What happens is the whole becomes greater than the sum of its parts. One of the producers of the Monkees once, when asked that question, said, "We just caught lightning in a bottle." Yeah. And that's sort of uh, the way I look at it. It was the writing, it was the songwriting, it was the. The comedy, the TV show, the directing, the and of course the four of us, and um, all of a sudden, it, it just sort of self ignites, like a, a <laughs> an uncontrolled fission reaction. Yeah, or something. absolutely. And so that's my answer. That uh, a long winded one, but no, good answer, sir. Uh, and you know, it's funny sticking with the Star Trek analogy. Are you a Star Trek fan, or I don't know if you're a Star Trek fan or not. Oh yeah, of course I was. Yeah, uh, sure. Oh well, I'll tell you. I'll tell you something in a second. But but it's sticking with that. Like I look at William Shatner now. Here's a guy who took all of this fire underneath him because of Star Trek and used it after denying it for a number of years and propelled it now where he uses it all the time and it works out great for him. And I'm not saying you you know you yeah. rejected the monkeys, but it's interesting. Like you know, for instance, you still get to do your solo CDs and stuff. Like what was it last year? Out of nowhere. Uh, so that's got to be exciting that, yeah, okay, maybe you've got this monkey bass thing, but it's allowing you to still do these other things. Oh, absolutely. I, I didn't uh, I didn't rest on my laurels after the monkeys. Uh, that's when I moved to England because I wanted to uh, <clears throat> I wanted to be uh, start producing and directing after the after the monkey show. Yeah. I I, uh, I directed, wrote and directed an episode and then. I got lucky. I went to England just uh, to do a play, actually, to star in a play. And I got lucky and had a, <clears throat> an agent send me around. And uh, I got a uh, first thing I did was a drama play for the BBC. And then I went on and for about 10, 15 years, uh, all I did was direct and produce. And it was good because it gave me a chance to step back from it all. And I didn't yeah. do any singing, no monkey business, no, <laughs> no, monkey no entertaining, business. no acting. No, no monkey no business, monkey yeah. Business, yeah. <laughs> so it gave me a, it gave me a chance to step back from it, and that was fortunate because I can see how it can be a problem once you've had, once you've become so identified, so typecast. You know, um, called the it's called the Mr. Spock problem. You know, yeah, and. You know, Leonard, uh, who's an incredibly fine, well, high, highly trained Shakespearean actor, it must have been very frustrating not to get, the, the, you know, uh, considered for some major uh, roles after Star Trek, you know. But that's the price you pay to some degree. Yeah. But the producing, directing thing or the writing, directing thing for you, that was unexpected, right? I mean, yes, you toiled with it in The Monkees, but getting a chance to do that, like as a regular gig for two years – that's got to be pretty surprising, amazing, isn't it? Well, I just, again, I felt very, very blessed. Yeah. I, I, I went over there to do a play, and, but I, it, was, it was my plan to, I had already started a little production company called Dolan's Productions, 
And I had done a commercial or two and some documentary work. And then I got lucky over in England at the BBC, like I said. And <clears throat> then subsequently at the other television companies, LWT and uh, Central and Granada and all those, all the television and film companies and did a couple of short films and commercials and music videos. Worked pretty consistently for, like I say, 10, 12 years. And, uh, and then uh, came back to the States to do the first Monkey Reunion uh, tour in 1986. And like I say, I, I, it, it was good. I was fortunate that I hadn't been like trying to push back on it for, for, for many, many years. And I kind of was able to look back at it with fresh, a fresh sort of point of view. So was it, was it exciting then stepping back into that world, you know, after spending so much time in England, coming back to America, and suddenly it's like the monkeys reunion thing. Was it exciting and refreshing rather than like, oh, God, we're still doing the monkeys? Oh, no, it was totally exciting and refreshing. I, that's what I was just saying. I, yeah, okay. Having been away from it for so long and more importantly is having actually achieved a degree of success. I was quite successful in England as a producer-director right. and a showrunner. I created my own shows and I – produced and wrote and directed other people's shows. And, and I, at one point, the, when someone would, a newspaper or an article or a phone or like this, or uh, uh, they would say, uh, they stopped saying ex-monkey Mickey Dolans. And, uh, you know, the, the headline would be um, Michael Dolans, a uh, television producer. Nice. Uh, is announcing, is announcing the, uh, you know, the, the, air date of the beginning of a new series and so i got to be known and respected as a producer director with no monkey business attached at all right and so that helped <clears throat> so when i did go back to it in the 80s for the reunion i was thrilled it was only supposed to be just a little uh a 10-week tour if that um, just for the reunion, and of course it lasted, and well, it's lasted until this day. <laughs> yeah, it still goes. It's amazing. You know, emotionally, did that did that have a, a re I mean, obviously, creatively, I get it, being away and coming back. Emotionally, do you find that that was very reassuring, finding that you could do other things? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that, it was a very... Um, Emotionally, you know, psychologically, creatively, in yeah. every way, um, because that that you know that post success thing uh, can be a problem, you know, and and we see it all the time. Oh yeah, and people like re react in different ways. Sometimes they just try to run away from it, and um, I kind of liken it to this uh, train. Excuse the uh, pun, but. You know, you work very hard to to get your career going. Right. And you, uh, it's I liken it to getting this train rolling, and that is your career. And um, it takes a lot of work and a lot of energy and a lot of uh, uh, time and effort to get the, to get this thing rolling. And I don't know if you know, you know, the term inertia. Yeah. <clears throat> the word inertia. You, you, it, the train starts to pick up speed, and you. It creates a lot of inertia, and and it's very successful, and you get it going, and everybody loves it. And then uh, one day you want to get off, you want to you know stop the train. Well, some people they want to stop the train, uh, 
you know, you, you've seen that where yeah. people just say, I don't want to, I don't want to sing my hit songs anymore or whatever. And that's impossible to do at that point. Right. The train just has way too much inertia. Or you can try to nudge it sideways uh, a little bit, like sort of reinventing yourself, which people do. Uh, someone like Madonna is exceptional at that. Yeah, she is. And w- was, you know, just uh, able to just a little reinvention. David Bowie, Bowie, of course, was another example. And there's others. Or you just get off the train. And that's kind of what I did uh, when I went to England. I just sort of got off the train and waved goodbye and said, have a nice time. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and that's another way of dealing with it. But if you try to stand in front of the train and stop it, you're probably it's probably not going to happen. Right. Right. And then you find you can get back on the train. It's not as hard as you thought <laughs> to get back on that yeah. train if you want to. Exactly. And that's and, and again, that's kind of what I did. Yeah. You know, because people don't realize that much. I don't think that like you were pretty good into music prior to the monkeys. Right. I mean, you were you were working in a band and you well, were a little bit. OK. Yeah, I had uh, I had cover bands uh, for a few years before the monkeys. Um, but <clears throat> mainly I was a television, a, a child star in the 50s. I had my own TV series. Right. Uh, called Circus Boy. Yeah. And so when the monkeys came along, that was my second series. So I was quite familiar with that whole world of television and television shows mm-hmm. and series. And so I, you know, slipped right into that that new role, which was uh, the you know the wacky drummer in this uh, rock and roll band. <laughs> the wacky drummer, <laughs> like yeah, it is. I know. I and know. That's it's how I look at it to this day. Yeah. You know, it's funny because at the now people, of course, it's all beloved and everything with the monkeys, and it was beloved at the time. So I don't want to make it sound like it wasn't. My question for you is this: I wonder, was there a feeling, like, was there great excitement about doing the monkeys, or was it? Did it feel like, as many people dismissed it at the time, as sort of a cash in on the Beatles? And I don't mean that disrespectfully at all, but what people said at the time. What was your feeling about that whole thing? Well, my feeling at the time, you know, when you're that successful, you really don't give a shit, (laughs) frankly. Um, But the people that I cared about got it. Right. They got what it was. Um, It was not, uh, uh, as you say, trying to cash in on the Beatles. It was a television show. The Monkees was not a group or a band. It was a TV show about a band. And it was about this imaginary band who lived in this beach house, which was a set on Columbia lot. And they were a band that wanted to be the Beatles. Um, that's what the show was about. And it was the struggle for that success that I think had a lot to do with, uh, uh, you know, uh, touching upon all those kids out there around the country, around the world that were trying to, they were in their basements and living rooms and, and garages and they wanted to be the Beatles. We had a poster of the Beatles on the set. We'd throw darts at it. Um, and on the monkey, on the monkey show, uh, it's important to remember that we were never famous on the monkey show. We never made it. It was that struggle for success. Uh, and that's what I think uh, resonated with, with, with so many kids. Um, you know, the closest thing that's come along, I think, recently... Uh, is, is a show called Glee. I don't know if you're oh, familiar yeah, with it, but yeah, yeah it's a, <clears throat> it was a show about an imaginary Glee club. 
in a school, right. imaginary school. Um, but they could all do it. They could all sing and dance and play. And, and, and they, I understand they went on the road also. And yeah, they did, yeah. So that's the closest kind of thing that I think that's come along in a while. But back in the 60s, of course, that kind of thing was unheard of in, in Hollywood and especially in rock and roll. You know, people took their rock and roll very seriously uh, uh, and still do to some degree, some people. Yeah. And along comes this, you know, Timothy Leary had a, uh, like half a chapter in one of his books called The Politics of Ecstasy. I don't know if you... Uh, you know, what, what your feelings are about Timothy Leary. But long before I had, it had occurred to me, he wrote the half a chapter about the monkeys in one of his books and essentially was saying it brought long hair into the living room. Uh, so because by, at that point, if you had long hair and bell bottoms, the only time you were on television is you were being arrested. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> you hippies. And so all of a sudden, here, all of yeah, all of a sudden comes the, these guys that are just, we just too busy singing to put anybody to, and um, it made it, it sort of made it okay to have long hair and bell bottoms. It did not mean you were going to commit crimes against nature. So like I was saying, the the um, the people that cared, uh, that I cared about got it. Right. People were like the Beatles, you know, John Lennon was the first one to say they're, I like the monkeys, I like the Marx Brothers. Uh, which is very true. The monkeys was much more like the Marx than it was the Beatles. Yeah. And if you get that, and it, you know, if that makes sense to you, and you get your arms around that, then everything else makes sense. Frank Zappa, good friend of mine, got it. Um, and he was on the show, and also in the movie that we did, because he got it. Andy Warhol, who I uh, knew, uh, got it. He he got the whole. Uh, pop culture thing of the monkeys. So yeah, the people I cared about, uh, got it. And the people that I didn't care about, well, I didn't care. <laughs> <laughs> right. Why, why should you? you know, now you pointed out an interesting thing that you said this, this wasn't, this was a show about being in a band, uh, and a band that wanted to be the Beatles. Yeah. That being said, yeah. at what point did you realize that you guys, you four were no longer just some guys pretending to be a band? Well, it, it does get a little bit kind of strange, uh, again, for the time, but not so much today. You see that all the time. People are, are cast into something or American Idol or, of, of, you know, some, some, some sort of a project and all of us. And they uh, – Mike Nesmith, the way he put it, um, was that when we went on the road and started performing live, just the four of us. Yeah. He said, that's when Pinocchio became a real little boy. <laughs> and there is something to that. Like I said, with Glee, when they went out and performed, were they the characters on the TV show or were they themselves? Right. You know, it's, it's a good question. Um, and I think that, you know, in a way, that was the moment when the, the other monkey band, you know, sort of uh, had life, you know, breathed life into it. Uh, so there's kind of, there's kind of like two monkeys. By the way, you're going to – this is only my opinion. You know, you'd have to ask Mike or Peter and uh, unfortunately not David anymore right. their take on this because it, it might be very different. It's a bit like Rashomon, yeah. you know, that old Japanese oh, yeah. tale. Right. Well, it's very much like Rashomon. So my take was that 
um, there, there, there were two groups. There were two monkey groups. One was the, the imaginary one on the television show, living in that beach house in Malibu, never making it, which does beg the question of how we could afford a beach house in Malibu. <laughs> oh, yeah. Now that you mention uh, that. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, and, but never made it. And then there's the monkey band that that rehearsed and uh, worked our butts off to do live concerts and did eventually hundreds uh, of live concerts on the road. And so, like Mike says, that's sort of like Pinocchio becoming a real little boy. Yeah. And that's the way that uh, that I look at it. Yeah. And musically, too, was it tough? I mean, I know because you had these great songwriters doing these songs for the band. But you guys were itching to write your own stuff, right? And do your own music, which you eventually did. Well, not me, no. No, you were no, happy with the not songwriters. Me. Um, <laughs> I, was, I was happy with playing. Well, I was happy with being cast into a show, not the member of a band. Right. The member of a cast in a television show about a band. Mm -hmm. And that's a fine distinction, but an important oh, one. Oh, yeah. So I was playing the role of the wacky drummer in a, and part of that job was when they'd say, okay, on Tuesday night at eight o'clock, you're going to uh, record a, a lead vocal for a, a, a couple of songs, sometimes two or three songs in one night. And I approached it as an entertainer, actor, singer. Uh, and that was my job you know like i said i'd already been in the business for 10 years at that time right and so i had no no problem i i had written a few things uh noodling on the guitar i was a guitar player as you may have heard before the monkeys yes. um and my audition piece was johnny be good by chuck berry okay. um which i would do in my cover band so i yeah i had musical experience i could read music and so when i was cast as the drummer in, in the show, mm -hmm. um, I, uh, I said, you know, but I'm a guitar player. And they said, well, we have enough guitar players. So, <laughs> now you're a drummer. Uh, <laughs> you're going to, you're going to be the drummer. Right. And I'm, and I was fine. Okay. Where do I start? Right. Like when I was cast into circus boy, they said, you're going to ride an elephant. And I said, great. Where do I start? <laughs> <laughs> right. Same thing. Right. And <laughs> yeah. And I took elephant riding lessons and then in the monkeys, I took drum lessons. But I could read music, so it wasn't like I was starting from square one. Right. But you, but you had these amazing songwriters. I mean, that and that that's great. I mean, oh, my, unbelievable! Yeah, unbelievable songwriters. Are you kidding me? Carol King and Jerry Goffin, Neil Diamond, Neil Sedaka, Paul Williams, Harry Nielsen, David Gates, Diane Hildebrand, Carol Bayer Sayer. I mean. You know, they don't write too many duff tunes, those people. <laughs> <laughs> no, they don't. <laughs> no, they don't. No, and I'm thrilled. I dedicate my show, my solo show, I dedicate to the songwriters. Yeah. Because, but, and they gave, it's great because you're, there are a lot of people who wouldn't be so gracious about it. You know what I mean? Like they, they almost hide the fact that it's like, oh, no, these are my songs. You know what I mean? Pretending that, uh, that there wasn't a team of writers behind all this stuff, you know? So that's cool. You know. Well, again, you know, I can only speak for myself. Sure. I know that Mike Nesmith has very different take on all this because he was a singer songwriter and he uh, was very frustrated. He, you know, we've talked about it. He was very frustrated in, in 
that they uh, had hired him, and presumably as a singer-songwriter, he'd never done any acting. And he has has a very different take on this. I, uh, he tells the story of going in to the producers, the uh, uh, music producers, one day in the early days when the thing was just when the whole thing was just started starting, and we're filming and and uh, starting to record and stuff. And he played him a song on his guitar, and he said, uh, "This is." Uh, my new one of my new songs and they said oh that's fine but that's not really a monkey song (laughs) and you know he was he he must have been quite confused and said but wait a minute i am one of the monkeys right and they said oh yeah that's true but no uh, that's not a monkey tune and he went and gave it to a young girl singer kicking around in los angeles at the time named linda ronstadt i've heard of her (laughs) and her and her group the stone ponies and that was different drums so nez nez was very frustrated peter tells the story of going into an early session with his bass guitar and they said what are you doing here (laughs) (laughs) and so and because peter was a folk musician and uh you know, a uh, guitar, well, plays like seven instruments. You know, he went to a music conservatory. So it must have been very frustrating for, for the two of them. For myself, I can only speak for myself. No, I was used to be being cast into something and, and uh, you know, following directions, mm-hmm. hitting my mark. And uh, later on, it was Nez that got me into into songwriting. He's the one that actually said, "You know, you really should start writing some stuff. It's good," and I did. I, I I've never been prolific, but okay. <clears throat> I did write a few things, and uh, yeah. So I hope that kind of explains it. Oh today. yeah, absolutely. You know, you mentioned the movie before. I do want to know what the hell was it with Head? I mean, <laughs> what was that all about? I wish I knew. <laughs> I wish I knew. <laughs> <laughs> you and you don't know. I wish I knew. <laughs> no, you know, um, I have some thoughts about that, um, but I am afraid we're going to have to wrap this up pretty soon. I'll give you a, a, a few quick thoughts on head. Okay. Um, you, you know, the monkey show was canceled and uh, uh, it was mutual. And Bob Rafelson uh, and Bert came up and said, you know, we have a chance to do a movie. Uh what do you think? And uh, we sort of all agreed, well, I did, that we did not want to do a 90-minute uh, episode of The Monkees. Um, we'd been fettered quite a bit during the TV show because the network censors. And so the general consensus was, let's do something a little bit out there. Bob introduced us to this uh, B-movie actor named Jack Nicholson, who <laughs> right. uh, was going to come on board and, and be part of it and, and, and write, uh, write it. And um, we all fell in love with him immediately. He was and still is, you know, incredibly charismatic, funny, brilliant, you know. So we all got along. He hung out on the set for, with, for months. And then we all got together and we talked about this movie and that's and and head the movie head is what came out of those conversations between all of us and then jet and then um jack is the one that and uh pinned that you know very bizarre screenplay yeah uh, but you got to remember who was making this movie uh besides the four of us this was bob rafelson and bert schneider and jack and peter fonda who came around and dennis hopper um the, this is before uh, easy rider yeah. but these guys were 
were, along with Martin Scorsese, say, um, these guys were, were pushing back against the, the major Hollywood uh, motion picture industry, mm-hmm. which was that unless you had a deal <clears throat> with one of the majors, Columbia, MGM, Paramount, Universal, whatever, you could not get a movie you could hardly get one made, and if you did, you probably could not get it distributed. They really controlled the whole industry. And um, these guys, these young bucks, in fact, there's a book called uh, Easy Rider Raging Bull. Oh, that's great. I don't yeah. know if you've read it. Yep, it's great. You've read it? Yeah, it's great. Oh, well, I have. They interviewed me for that. And um what these guys did was essentially with Easy Rider being the breakthrough uh movie they essentially deconstructed the the Hollywood major film industry from then on it was never the same right uh and that to some degree i think that's also what the movie is about deconstructing uh the Hollywood motion picture industry uh, via the monkeys experience and I don't know if uh, you've seen the movie, right? Oh, yeah. Long time ago, but I've seen it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Do you, I don't know if you remember. There's a scene with Mike and I and Terry Gar. It was her first uh, part in a film. Yeah. And we're, it's a Calvary scene. And we're um, uh, Mike and I are Calvary officers in the Wild West. And there's Indians attacking us. And Terry Gar is lying there with an arrow. And I don't know if you remember, but... It's pastiche on, on a lot. The, well, the whole movie was like pastiches on different Hollywood scenarios. And right. uh, uh, and then I stand there and all of a sudden I get hit with a bunch of fake arrows, you know, special effects arrows. And right. I look down and I break them off and I say, Bob, I, I've had it. I can't do this anymore. Uh, I'm speaking to Bob Rachelson, <laughs> right. the director. And I say, I can't do this. And I throw the uh, arrows onto the ground and I turn around and I storm off and I go right through the backdrop of the set. Oh, that's uh, great. I don't, I didn't remember that, but now that you're saying it, yeah. Yeah. And I just, I just go right through the backdrop and tear a hole in it and walk out. That to me is sort of the central conceit of, of the movie. It was breaking through the, old school barriers of, uh, of the Hollywood studio system. And then they went on the producers, of course, and made easy rider. after that. Absolutely. You know, I I know you got to go, but let me ask you this about the tour. I'd love to get something in there about this upcoming tour. If you want to talk. Oh, sure. Please fill me in. What's what's I do. Uh, (laughs) Well, Mike and I, and Peter went out a couple of years ago and, uh, you know, Mike uh, has, as you probably know, has only dipped in and out of it. He's sort yeah. of our Neil Young, you know. <laughs> Crosby, Stills, That's Maddie a good analogy, and, yeah. And um, yeah, and uh, and we've always invited him, and he's always been welcome, and he knows that. And uh, for whatever reason, you have to ask him. He, uh, but Peter and, uh, and he and I went out, and Nez had a good time, I guess. And then. Um, and then he started writing a book, and he didn't go out uh, last year or the year before. That was Peter and I. And then um, Peter start, ha, has started doing a, a project on his own, a blues project. And the agents said, would you and Nez like to go out? We think we can book a, a tour. And we both jumped at it because Nez and I, of all the combinations, you know, I, I think have one of the most interesting vocal blends of 
of all of us. And we used to sing together and, and some of the songs that he wrote that I did like an Everly Brothers harmony to, mm. I think are just spectacular. And, um, and we get along, we have a similar sense of humor. So, but it, it's going to be different. It's going to be a different kind of monkey show. It's called monkey monkeys present the Mike and Mickey show, huh. which okay. puts a different kind of a, a, a twist on it. And I, I like that idea. Uh, rather than just calling it the monkeys, it's right. the monkeys present the Mike and Mickey show, and uh, a lot of his material that, uh, well, we've done in the past without him, but he'll be singing it, uh, you know now. Right. And I'm doing the harmonies and singing along with him, and then of course there'll always be the big hits, written by those incredible writers that we spoke about. That's awesome. Are you excited about it? I mean, going out there and doing it again? Oh yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I've been doing it now for uh, pretty solid for 30 years, three decades. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I ain't too crazy about I ain't too crazy about the traveling, but my beautiful wife is going to be coming with me Aww. and uh, helping to take care of me. Uh, they pay us to travel. We sing for free. Mickey remains proof that monkey mania is alive and well. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast. Please subscribe and let us know what you think. I'm Ed Gross. We'll talk next time on CloserWeekly.com's classic TV and film podcast.